0: Romans 8, 1-17 There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death He is none of His. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, Not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself beareth witness with our Spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. During the Depression, there is a sheep ranch owned by a man named Yates. And Mr. Yates wasn't able to make enough on his ranching operation to pay the principal and interest on his mortgage, so he was in real danger of losing his ranch. He had just a little bit of money left for clothes and food, and his family, like so many others during the Great Depression, had to live on government welfare. And day after day, he would have his sheep graze on those rolling west Texas hills, at the same time being very troubled about how he would pay his bills. And then there was a seismographic crew from the oil company that came into the area. And they told him there might be some oil on his land. And they asked permission to drill a well. And so he signed a lease. And at about 1,100 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. And that first well came in at 80,000 barrels of well a day. And there were other wells that they drilled as well. And they were twice as large, 660,000 barrels a day. And in fact, about 30 years after they d- drilled and discovered the oil on his land, a government test of one of the wells showed it still had a potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day. And that whole time, even in poverty, Mr. Yates owned it all. The day he had purchased the land, received the land, received the deed, he had received the oil and mineral rights. Yet he'd been living on welfare. A potential multi-millionaire... Living in poverty. And the problem was this. He didn't know the oil was there. Even that he owned it. And the same can be true of us as believers. We can live in spiritual poverty. We've received the Spirit and His energizing power. But we may not be aware of the birthright. Of the Holy Spirit. That comes when we receive Jesus. There's a couple common ways of Christians not really aware of the Spirit in you that might seem okay at first, but they're only partial truths and miss the fullness of it. There's two ways. They're they're facades. They appear to value the Holy Spirit, but in actuality, when it all comes down to it, there's little value. There's one way of looking at the Holy Spirit and with head knowledge saying, yeah, I have the Holy Spirit and You have a passive, detached head knowledge. He lives in me, but it's just that. It's theory. There's little entwining in moment-by-moment life. And then there's a second that might be actually even a bit more subtle. We're saved from wrath to come, and we have the Spirit living in us, and we want this experience of the Holy Spirit in us, but somehow we think that that means we work harder, to get to the point of the Spirit being in us. And so we end up being confused how to get to that point. And our thinking ends up being like this. I must have this so I can live like I'm new. There's a little bit of truth in that. But there's something that's incomplete in that. And what Paul wants us to understand in Romans 8, 1-17 is this. That we can miss that the Spirit is already at work in us. And what happens in our practice is our work, his work in us can be elusive with some of these wrong ways of thinking about the Holy Spirit. And we never know the, uh, and understand and appreciate and enjoy that God has given us a fundamental change and new heart and life already inside you. So both have the same fatal flaw. The Holy Spirit is said to be in you. But I either don't have interest in intertwining Him to my life like Jesus says He already is, enlivening us, or I think it's going to depend on me in order to have Jesus through the Holy Spirit living in me. And it can be like Mr. Yates. We can be sitting there and don't realize the value of what we've been given. If we think we can earn it, we don't understand how valuable the transformation he's done. Transformation he's done to to make you into God's child and born again, and how it relates to moment by moment living. Paul tells us in Romans six: already we are this. So then reckon. Bring into your thinking, sum it up here of what Jesus had said you are now sum it up in the everyday living. And what Paul in this chapter wants the readers to know is that they are in God. They are enthroned with Christ so they can embody him in real life situations. This unseen reality of the person of the Holy Spirit is is then embodied in our choices and our responses and our desires and our actions because we are people of the Spirit. And so Paul is going to use the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit to show the assurance that we have. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 28 that we're to baptize disciples who we make in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And you ever think about why? Why not just baptize them? Why not baptize them in one of the persons of the God? And why Father, Son, and Spirit? And part of the answer to that is this. Because you and I are in them and in their fellowship, in their friendship through Christ. Through the love of the Father, through the work of the Son, and through the application of the Holy Spirit. They've all worked together to bring you in. And this chapter here, Romans 8, is, 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 is a, has a great thrust about assurance. He starts with that. He talks with that. He describes God's work, continuing work in you, the sanctification But He wants us to understand here as He closes, particularly in the end of chapter 8, that sanctification flows out of this assurance. It flows out of this assurance. And so we're going to break this down into each person of the Godhead, each person of the Trinity, and see their role in that great assurance here. Particularly in the role of the Holy Spirit. The first thing I think we can see is the love of the Trinity. He gives us everlasting. He gives us eternal life through, first of all, the righteousness of the Son. The righteousness of the Son. You can see that in verse 4. In verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I see this as a statement here. What is true about us? What the Apostle seems to mean here when he talks about now about the flesh, he'll say, uh, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Flesh, that's a, that's a, that's a word. It has a, 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 an array of meanings. Context determines meaning here. And what the apostle seems to mean about the flesh is a condition. Natural to humanity, born in their sins, in which God and the spiritual realm are left out of account. To be in the flesh, chapter 7, verse 5, and later on 8, 8 and 9, is to be uh, trapped in this situation here. It's a narrowly human way. The mind of the flesh, the mindset of the flesh results in living in a narrowly human way. Or living only for temporal things. But God has provided his Son, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, fully God and fully man, yet without sin. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the demands of God's commands and died as the perfect sacrifice, though He died in the place of the guilty one. It's illustrated like this when Oliver Cromwell served as the Lord Protector of England. There was the a young soldier in his army who was sentenced to death when the curfew bell rang at the end of the day. And that young soldier's fiancé begged Cromwell to save his life by giving him a pardon, but Cromwell refused. As the church is over and over uh, at the end of the day, he, he yanked on that rope and pulled that rope at the curfew, but that bell remained silent because what had happened was this. The young man's fiance had climbed into the bell tower and she had wrapped herself around the clapper in the bell to keep it from striking the bell. And the edge of the bell was beating against her body, but that bell would not strike and sentence that young soldier to death. She refused to let go in spite of the injuries. Cromwell was, was deeply impressed by this uh, sacrificial love and, and, and heroism and he, and he commuted the sentence and it illustrates very vividly Christ's sacrifice on the cross climbing on the cross in our place to receive the just judgment for our sin so that we could be free from judgment so Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit No condemnation, no sentencing, no shame. Now, your mind might put you in shame. Other people can declare shame on you. But God Himself, because of Christ in our place, sees you as His dearly beloved. The Son of God has already taken the condemnation and shame. But you stay at the end of verse 1 there. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And I'm going to explain what Paul's saying about that. Because he's going to bring it up at the end of verse 4 again. That the righteousness of the law through the Son of God coming in our place might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That righteousness, that uh, imputed perfection of Jesus Christ has been credited to our account. And now there is a definitive statement about us. Though we can err in sin as believers, Paul's point is this. We are people who walk in the Spirit... And not after the flesh. Our problem is our reckoning with those truths. And he's going to talk about that and our walk and our sanctification a little bit more in verse 12 and 13. And our responsibility here. But what he wants us to understand is that God at the righteousness of Jesus has poured out his spirit upon us. And so secondly, we're going to see in verses 5 through 13 the power of the spirit. Now what Paul is communicating is... Here is difficult to read in English, easier to read in the original language, the Koine Greek, with what's called the moods of grammar. There's different conditions in Greek. And in these verses, Paul in verses 5 through 13 is speaking in what's called the indicative mood. we tend to read it as conditions and imperatives and, and commands. But what he's doing is, 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 is speaking in the indicative mood. And the indicative mood in the original language is the mood that tells us this is true. This is what God has done. We expect it to be imperative. And many times it's been taught this way, but that is not the intent of the author here. And so what Paul is doing is describing the spiritual reality. Those following the flesh displease God and die, and those following the Spirit obey God and live. You say, well, don't I have a responsibility as a Christian? Yes, you do. We're going to get to that in verses 12 through 13 again. But Paul's point is this. He he switches to the second person, and he declares to the audience this. You do not belong to the flesh side of things. But to the spirit side of things, that conditional clause beginning "if indeed" uh, or, or, or "or if" is is uh, or "if in fact" here is not meant to imply a cause for doubt. Well, if this happens, then you're in the spirit. But it is stressing what is precisely true about them. The audience belongs. To the realm of the spirit, because the spirit of God dwells in them and possessing the spirit of Christ himself is the condition, is the truth here for belonging to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have received the spirit of Christ. He is in you. You see, Holy Spirit doesn't come to you in installments. You get a little piece of the Spirit here, and then later on uh, you work your way up to to a little bit bigger piece of the Spirit. No, He's a person. And just like a woman's not just a little bit pregnant. Paul's word for us is to access what is already true. And so when Paul says if here, and has the meaning of this, since, as is the The case, the presence of the spirit transforming our sinful nature, the image of Christ gives us reason to think that out of the life of shame and Adam, the life of glory of God has in some mysterious way already broken through into our present realm of existence. Yes, we live with both feet still in this age. But there has been a breakthrough point that has established us and given us eternal life and the life of very God in our souls through the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying this in verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind or have the mindset of the things of the flesh. That's the old realm. But they that are after the Spirit have the mindset here of the things of the Spirit. For to be fleshly or carnally minded, have the mindset of the flesh, that narrow way of the old way here, is death. He's already said that in 6.23. Remember 6.23? But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit of the holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says this in verse 7, the fleshly, the carnal mindset is enmity against God. And notice the definitive nature again about these two realms. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. What Paul is saying is this, as the believer, you're not taking the carnal fleshly mind and saying, come on, you need to come here under the submission of Christ. What he's saying is this, God has given you a new operating system. He's given you a new mind, the mind of Christ. It's called the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And the Holy Spirit can live in subjection to a new master. That's who we feed. And he says this in verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice what he says in verse 9. Again, this idea of this is the real you. You are a new creation. But you all, ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, and again the idea is since, so be that the Holy Spirit of God dwell in you. Notice again, no, not neutral, not floating in between stages here, not floating in between realms, I should say here, but either or. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ. He is none of his. You see, what had happened in chapter seven, Paul said, was the law, the Torah, the commands of God uh, was not only captured by sin, it was weakened by flesh our flesh is has become hostile to God it, it's an embodied existence that needs to be condemned verse 3 it's 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 uh, it's it's disobedience it's rebellion against God flesh people have fleshly minds fleshly minds are headed toward death verse 6 the flesh is hostile to God it does not submit to God it can't submit to God verse 7 those in the flesh cannot please God because of that truth to deal with flesh Christ had to come in human flesh to destroy the evil flesh, the mindset. It's the idea of this. If you're in Christ, you and I are a little like the duck hunter who was hunting with his friend in a wide open barren of land in southeastern Georgia. And far away on the horizon, he noticed a cloud of smoke. And soon they could hear the sound of crackling and, and there's a wind came up and he realized the terrible truth that there is a brush fire that was advancing his way and it was moving so quickly that he and his friend couldn't outrun it. And so he began to go through his pockets and he emptied out all of the, the things that were in his backpack and he soon realized uh, that, he had, uh, that, 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 that he needed a pack of matches. He saw a pack of matches in there and he got them out and he pulled out a match and he, and he lit that match. And he lit a small fire around the two of those guys. And soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth that had burned up. And they were waiting for the brush fire to come to them. The brush fire was hot. It would burn up. Uh, it was burning everything in this path. And they didn't have to wait long. And they covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs. And they, and they braced themselves. And that fire came near. But it went around them. They were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched. Because the fire would not burn the place where the, where, the, where the fire had already burned. And God's law is like that brush fire. Without Christ, I cannot escape it. But if I stand in the burned over place, the law has already burned its way through. In Christ, I am saved. Not a hair of my head will be singed. The death of Christ is a burned over place. And there I huddle. I can hardly believe it, yet I'm relieved that Christ's death has disarmed the law. And so Paul had said in Romans 7, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's given us a receipt here. The death, burial, and resurrection is like a store receipt. Think about it like this. If you're in a large mall, department store, and you buy some clothes and you get the receipt and you put the clothes in your bag and you put the receipt in your pocket. And you walk around the store and the security person sees you and says, hey, excuse me, we've had some shoplifters. Can I look in your bag?" And if you don't have a receipt, you're in some danger there. You could be in trouble. And you want to be able to hold up your receipt and say, hey, security person, this proves that this has been paid for and I don't have to pay for it again. And the cross and death and burial and resurrection is a giant receipt stamped across history for all people to see. A receipt that allows you to know that your future is certain if you believe in Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ. Let's say that somebody goes to jail. There's a law, and the law says they have 10 years in jail as a punishment for their crime. And the day that man comes out of jail, he's paid for the crime. That law has no claim on Him anymore. He's a free man. Well, Jesus is the one who paid our debt in that, uh, who paid the debt. We are a free man. He's in our place. The wages of sin is death. And when Christ went down into the death, He paid for our sin. When He came up out of the grave, it was paid. Christ's resurrection is is fully paid. And we understand these things we understand that sin, flesh, and death are, have been given a, a death blow by Christ's death and resurrection. And He not only dies our death, but He conquered the enemy. He shuffled us from the Adam line to the cross line of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus' victory becomes my victory. But we've, what we forgot is this. That other stamp that God puts on this that down payment as proof of this finished work is also the Holy Spirit. In October 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed much of what was a bustling city of Chicago. The interesting thing about that fire is this. The flames actually started on the other side of the Chicago River. So you might ask, how did the fire cross over the river and reach Chicago. Well, that river jumping fire, part of it explained because of the high winds that had spread the fire to some wooden ships that were anchored in the river. But there's also something that was even a more important factor in the spreading of the fire over the river to the city of Chicago, and it's this. In those days, 1870s, Chicago River was a pretty shallow, sluggish sewer for the entire city. There were some stockyards in Chicago where they would hold the animals and, and uh, ship the animals on, on barges or drive them up from Kansas that dumped all their animal waste in the river. And people called the Chicago River the Stinking River or Bubbly Creek. And it was so bad that the waste was actually combustible. And all of that putrefaction flowed into Lake Michigan. And Lake Michigan was where they had their drinking water intakes. And so there were waterborne diseases in Chicago, and every year through the 1880s and 1890s, at least 10,000 people died from cholera and typhoid fever. And so 14 years after the Great Chicago Fire, 1885, there had been nearly 100,000 people that had died from the illnesses that were carried by the river's putrid waters into Lake Michigan, where they would get their water. So finally, the city engineers took some action. And they started digging 28 miles of canal. They moved actually more earth and rock than that were moved building the Panama Canal. And they put in locks and gates. And then on January 2nd, 1900, a worker opened a sluice gate at Lake Michigan. And the entire Great Lakes flowed into the Chicago River. Before the Chicago River flowed into the Great Lakes. But now the Great Lakes flowed into the Chicago River and it pushed it a direction it had never flowed before. And they reversed the flow of the Chicago River. It now flowed the opposite way into the, this Plains River, into the Illinois River, into the town, into the Mississippi. And what happened was this. There was a huge flow of fresh water. Instead of shallow and sluggish and diseased water that made the community sick and brought death, this river now brought the city life. And some historians say that Chicago wouldn't even be around today had that flow of the Chicago River not been reversed. It was such a destructive thing um, before that happened. Um, and the American Society of Civil Engineers say this is, this is one of the engineering projects of the millennium. There's a similar practice at work in our relationship with Christ. What Jesus has done for us at the cross and the resurrection and what He did following by sending the Spirit is even more astonishing. For all those who receive Christ, Jesus reverses the flow of the human soul. Instead of the shallow and sluggish and diseased waters of human sinfulness, Jesus opened the sluice gates of new and living water into our lives by giving us the Holy Spirit. Yes, there's responsibilities that we have to know exercise because of that. And we'll get to that in verse 12 and 13. But you remember in John chapter 3, where Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then he says later on, those that are born of the flesh are flesh, a physical existence. But those that are born of the spirit are spirit. What does he mean, spirit? It means this. When we're born again, we are made alive in God. And God himself dwells in us. That's the Holy Spirit. And in the Christ line now, instead of the Adam line of Romans chapter 5 that led to death, then it was disobedience, the Spirit is active. He, he, we, the Bible call, uh, calls this regeneration. Bringing a person in a new creation life. We're rescued from the Adam line into the Christ line. We have life, and in the Christ line, we discover righteousness. And in Christ, since Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness, verse 10. We put to death the deeds of the body now out of responsibility. Our sanctification, our growing in holiness flows out of this truth in verse 13. We have assurance of God's grace as children of God in verse fifteen and sixteen, and eternal life verses sixteen and seventeen. And this, this again, this text is that has a thrust here—the overall thrust of assurance. The flesh was the old creation era; the spirit is the new creation era. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit is what he's saying literally. The old is gone, the new has come. Second Corinthians 5. The old regime and master been replaced with a new one. So by God's grace in Christ, Christians have been taken out of the realm dominated by flesh, that narrowly sinful leading to death, human outlook that leads to sin and death, and, and we placed in the realm that is. Dominated, mastered by the Holy Spirit of grace. So Paul's speaking of in flesh, in spirit, is, 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 is to indicate that we're, we're dominated by one or the other of these forces. And we are in the Spirit if the Spirit lives in us. And since the Spirit lives in us, we are in the Spirit. Now we have to walk that out. Now, who does the Spirit live in? And the answer to that is in every person who is a Christian, who is a believer, who is a follower of Jesus. Not to have the Spirit of Christ, Paul says, is not to belong to Christ at all. The New Testament teaches the gift of the Holy Spirit is an automatic grace gift, a benefit for anybody who knows Jesus interesting the things that we ask uh, in our day to to, to to find out where people are with God are you saved etc when Paul wanted to know where a person was in Christ you know what he asked do you have the spirit he says this in the book of Acts friends every Christian every believer really is in the spirit under his Rulership. Now here's the thing, and we're going again, we're going to see this in 12 and thirteen. We may not always reflect that domination of the Spirit. that he's our new master, but it is the fundamental fact of our Christian existence and the basis of a life of confidence and obedience to the Lord. Um, so Paul here talks and says that uh, uh, the spirit's dominion might not be obvious. We're continuing existence in a in a, in a in a in a in a physical body. It's going to be it's it's doomed to die, and it's still all too susceptible to the to the to wrong desires and the influence of sin. But Paul says, yes, even with Christ in us, yes, our bodies are still dead because of sin, and eventually a physical death is going to be a penalty that we're going to pay for sin that must be carried out. Yet we take confidence because Paul says. Our spirit is alive because of righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ here. That power of life has come to live in us. And it's because of that light, that power of life, you been certain of a future resurrection of our body. Our bodies may be doomed to die, but the Spirit, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of the God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us and guarantees, we'll see this in 18 through 25, that our bodies will not end in the grave. God through the Spirit will give life to those bodies again. Holy Spirit does this. This is, this is, this is what He loves to do. He loves to bring life. He does this in Genesis 1 where the Spirit of God uh, hovered over the faces of the waters and then you have the days of creation of life now coming out of that through God's Word. You remember when He created Adam, Adam He was formed out of the dust of the ground and the Lord God breathed into Him the breath of life. That word breath is the word Spirit, Ruach in the Hebrew. Maybe you remember in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God told Israel that I'm going to take your heart of stone, your dead heart that just wants to, to, to sink like a rock into the, into the ocean away from me. He's going to take that heart of stone and He's going to replace it with a soft, tender heart. And God's law now will be written on the inside, written on the heart. There's going to be a fundamental disc change There's an operating system that's changed. The Bible calls it a new mind. The mind of Christ. The Bible calls it a new heart. The Bible uh, describes it as a new creation. Um, uh, And then in Ezekiel 37, speaking about Israel, God gives a beautiful illustration of this and what the Spirit does. You remember what it is? He takes Ezekiel... To a hill to look out over a valley of bones. Where they would take the bones of the people that were buried. And there they were. And the Spirit of God begins to move. And those bones rise up. And flesh comes on those bones. And those bones are brought to life again in human beings. It's such a picture of what the Holy Spirit loves to do. And God has put us here in the Spirit. Which means this. The basic orientation of our life is determined by the Spirit. Again, this is not discounting our responsibility to live in that, but what it's telling us is this. Jesus is going to complete the task in us through the Holy Spirit. And our job is to surrender to that and cooperate with that. He's going to produce fruit pleasing the Lord. There's a security here. But, as I said, He does not do this work apart from a response. Look at the careful balance Paul says in verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, put to death, execute the deeds of the body, ye shall live. You shall live. Notice the emphasis there, the responsibility now. Out of these truths... That you are people of the Spirit, not mere men. You are supernatural, not natural. There's something different about you from when you were born to now that you are born again. There's a responsibility, though, on our shoulders here. We must put sin to death. And, he says, how do we do that? We can only do it through what is already true of us, that the Holy Spirit is in us. We can only do it through the Spirit. We cease living according to the flesh because of these things that are true. At 9.04 a.m. on September 2nd, 1945, aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, World War II officially ended. Signing on behalf of Emperor Hirohito, the Japanese foreign minister inked his signature to a document that declared Japan's complete, unconditional surrender to the Allied powers unconditional, must totally give themselves over to the Allied powers. What followed and happened after that, years later, was this. Through occupation aid and and help, Japan emerged from the ashes of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and recovery was slow, but it was steady, and became one of the most productive and peaceful countries in the world. But Japan had to put itself at the mercy of the prevailing powers in order to be renewed. The Japanese military and government had to completely give up. Had to lay down their arms and accept surrender with no conditions. That's why Jesus' own summons was this. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Romans 8, 13. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify, put the deeds of the body to death, you shall live. Romans would have a condemned criminal carry his cross to the site of crucifixion. And what Paul's saying here is, carry the cross to the place of execution. And here is what we are to put to death there. Do mortify the deeds of the body. The idea is the misdeeds of the body. And think about it, every use of our body, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, etc., which serves ourselves instead of God and other people. And think about it like this a temptation comes to us through what we see or what we handle or we visit or other pathways and avenues, we must be ruthless. And not looking, not touching, not going, not, and, and controlling the, these, these uh, 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 approaches and encroachments here of sin. That's the negative side. On the positive side, we're to set our minds on the things that the Spirit desires. Give our desires to the Lord. Set our hearts on things above. Occupy, occupy our thoughts with what is noble and right and pure and lovely. Right? You might say, well, what's the motivation for that? Let me give you a little bit of a motivation, a window into one angle of it, and then there's going to be more later on in 18 through 25 we'll look at another time. But think about it like this. Richard uh, Halverson was a former U.S. Senate chaplain, and he used to challenge people with this image. He said this, You're going to meet an old man or a woman someday down the road. 10, 30, 50 years from now, waiting there for you. You'll be catching up with him or her. What kind of old man are you going to meet? He may be, uh, or old woman, he may be a seasoned, soft, gracious fellow. A gentleman who's grown old gracefully, surrounded by hosts of friends. Friends who call him blessed because of what his life has meant to them. Or he or she may be a bitter, disillusioned, dried up old buzzard without a good word for anyone. Soured and friendless and alone. And he says this, that old man will be you. He will be the composite of everything you do, say, and think today and tomorrow. His mind will be seen into a mold that you've made by your beliefs. His heart will be turning out what you've been putting into it. Every little thought, every deed goes into this old man or woman. Every day and every way, you're becoming more and more like what you will be. It's amazing, but true. You're beginning to look more like yourself. Think more like yourself and talk more like yourself. You're becoming yourself more and more. Live only in terms of what you're getting out of life. And the old man gets smaller, drier, harder, crabbier, more self-centered. Open your life to others. Think in terms of what you can give, your contribution to life. And the old man grows larger, softer, kindlier, and greater. And I think the principle is this, friends. The more we allow the Spirit Control our desires and put to death those encroachments of sin that wants to take our desires and have them revolt against our new master. The more beautiful we become, the more we come conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8.29 tells us. And the more we set our minds on the things of the world and the things um, that are going to pass away that we live for. The more our lives shrink, dry up. The notice at the end of Romans 8, here 1 through 17, he says this For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Again, just great assurance here. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. You're not a slave to fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, overcomes those, those thoughts, that wrong thinking, those wrong emotions here, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, since we are children, then this also follows to be true, then heirs, heirs of God and companion heirs, joint heirs with Christ, If so be that we suffer with Him that we may be also glorified together. What he's saying this is that the love of the Trinity here expresses itself in the steadfast love of the Father. The steadfast love of the Father. It's expressed in the, in the glorious sacrifice and resurrection and, and, and uh, righteousness of the Son of God. It's given in the Spirit here. The everlasting Father has been poured out on us in the Spirit living inside of us. We're made people of the Spirit. And thirdly here, and these are all so intricately connected, but thirdly here, because of the Spirit, we are assured that we are the sons of God. So we're no longer slaves to fear. Let me illustrate it like this. I have a four-year-old son. Imagine here this summer as we go into the deep end of the pond or the deep end of the pool here. He wants to, he wants to go, uh, into the deep end with me and he's in the shallow end and he's not really able to swim very well yet. He has those big orange swimmies on those floaties and, and can't stink with those floaties on. Comes down to me, uh, at the pool and as soon as he he gets out in the water, uh, he says, Dad, I'm scared. I want to come where you are in the deep end. And I kind of chuckle at him and say, "Uh, but buddy, it's a lot deeper down here. And he says, I don't care, I want to be where you are. And so I say, come on in. And so he starts dog paddling across the the pool and passes the the three foot deep mark and then the six foot deep mark and then the nine foot and the 12 foot deep mark. And he, he comes up to me and he grabs my neck and that panic that fear gives way to relief. He's clinging to me. By his father, he feels secure, and it makes very little difference in his mind of how deep or dangerous that water below him is. He's with his father. What a pathetic illustration of a father who's bigger than any of that. Friends, we contemplate here our walk with the Lord and our hearts begin to fail us. But friends, what Paul wants to see is assure our hearts, fill our sails with this, how gentle is our God. How tenderly He picks us up and says, don't you understand that the Spirit in you is not cause for you to fear? It's not to break your heart. It's not to crush you to the earth. It's to assure you, I have come to you through Jesus incarnate. Through the Spirit living inside of you. And I am your Father. You know how you know when you really believe this? You know how you know? If you really understand the Gospel, is what you do when you fail. Do you run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room? Or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence in the Son? And you come to your father with confidence. I had a friend talk about a time where he was doing some work for his dad and his dad would uh, always just, he just could never measure up to his father. So this friend, when he was a little boy, had made a mistake and done something um, there and he was worried. What is he going to tell his dad? Based on his past experience, he was just, his heart was just crushed. He was just anticipating a smash down here of his, of his soul here from his father. And his father gave him grace. Surprised by grace. Accepted him, embraced him in spite of his mistake here. Friends, that is how we approach the throne of grace when we fail. Run to the Father. Receive the Son's cleansing. Run to the Father in boldness. You know what's offensive to God? is when we come to Him with all our efforts. We're still trying to earn what He has freely given us. Come to the Father. You're no longer a slave and bondage to fear. You have received the Spirit of doctrine whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness His witness stands in the court of God with our soul, with our spirit, that we are the children of God. The ones born of God. The Greek word is technon. One born. It's a child of God. Sons. The sonship of God. You know what the consequence of that is? Sons of God? We share in the Father's estate. We inherit what the Son of God inherits. Think about that earthly father in Jesus' parable the prodigal son. Heavenly Father assures us, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Luke 15, 31. As brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, we share what is his. We will reign with him. We will be kings and priests with him. And Paul brings these readers here into the reality of what being one with Christ gives us. It is a sharing in both His suffering and His glory. We have entered into the story of the cross here. Jesus has made it our own story. Romans 6, verses 4-6 through Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together, planted in new soil together, in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We follow the path Christ followed the glory. is what Paul is saying here. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. We follow the path Christ followed the glory. Shame, scorn, abuse, it's going to be hard. Persecution may follow. But there's a path of self-sacrifice or suffering with Him and for Him and the cause which He suffered. We set on the path here, the glory. And this path takes us under the shadows of the cross, takes us through the water of baptism, takes us through many trials of despair, and brings us to a final destination to be with God to be with God. And so 18 through 30 is going to be the springboard here. This is the springboard here about how we receive comfort in the suffering, in the persecution. You might say, well, does this really affect me in my perspective? Why don't you think about it like this? Imagine you have $5 billion. And one day you go out and you have three $10 bills in your wallet. And you take a taxi cab. I don't know why you take a taxi cab as a billionaire, but just use your imagination. And you hand the driver one of the bills, one of your $10 bills, for your $8 fare for your ride. Later in the day, you go into your wallet and you find out there's only one $10 bill in there. And you say this in your mind, "Uh uh-oh. Either I dropped a $10 bill somewhere, or I accidentally gave the taxi driver two bills. Now what are you going to do? You have five billion dollars to your name. Are you gonna get all upset? Are you gonna go to the to the city and demand that they, they search the city and, and the police search the city for the for the cab driver? Because he might have taken your other ten dollar bill? Are you gonna look all over the city and go up and down the streets to find that $10 bill? You know what you're gonna do? You have five billion dollars. You're gonna shrug. You're a billionaire. You lost ten bucks. So what, right? You're too rich to be concerned about that kind of loss. Friends, some of you may have suffered this week. Some of you had temptations this week. Somebody criticized you. Something you bought or invested in turned out to be less valuable than you thought. Something you wanted to happen didn't go the way you wanted it to be. Something you didn't want to happen, happened. Those are real losses. But what are you going to do if you're a Christian? Step back Difficulties, sufferings, are they gonna disrupt your joy in life? You're gonna shake your fist at God? You're gonna toss and turn at night in worry and anxiety. The answer is yes, then we have forgotten how truly rich we are in Son and Spirit and Father. When our statuses get upset, if we're lashing out at people, we're having pity parties, lack of self-control, lack of joy in God. We've lost touch with our identity. Christians, we are more than spiritual billionaires. Sometimes we can wring our hands over $10 and Paul's going to tell us in 18-25 through 25 why that does not need to be true. Let me close with this. And Isaiah Isaiah pictures Israel and the things that were going on in Israel the, the dryness and staleness of their hearts as a desert, a parched desert that nothing could grow in. And then he describes the temple of God. And out of the temple, this water starts to come. And this water turns into a river. And this river flows into the, into the desert representing Israel. And out of this desert now it becomes a rich, fertile valley producing trees and plants and fruits out of it. Friends, that's life in Father, Son, and Spirit. Our lives were dry. Our lives led to death. And God through His Son has given us what we could never do. And he took our punishment on the cross. He raised us with him to make us alive with him. He has seated us in a heavenly position. And he has put his spirit in our hearts that gives us the power now to say no to wrong desires, no to sin, and yet lets God take over our desires and says yes to God because we have been brought into His family, we are His children. When we're in the presence of God and we hear that beautiful music of the Son and the Spirit and Father playing in our souls, there's something inside of us that lifts and straightens us up. We're made whole. We don't need to turn to those darker, habitual patterns and addictive behaviors. That we have deceived ourselves to to bring uh, a pleasure. But we listen to the beauty here of that noble voice that calls us to Him. The other way leads us to be impaled on the jagged rocks and the storms. But Jesus calls us into the boat with Him and Father and Spirit. This is the everlasting life of God poured in our hearts and our souls. What a gift.